I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Second Chronicles 29. In just a few moments, I will direct your attention to that portion of God's Word. While you're turning, I want to add an additional uh, word of welcome to Samuel Imadi. It's always good to see you, Samuel. We miss you. Wish you were still here. We're praying for God's continued blessing on your seminary training. Are there any who do not have a copy of the little bulletin insert which enables you to take notes? Do we have a deacon who's prepared to quickly? We have one up on the front row. Just wait a minute. Up, Emily needs one up here. Please, Dwayne. Anyone else? Just raise your hand up pretty high so that you can... I, too, want to add my word of blessing to the Richardsons. We're glad to see you this this last time for now, and we hope that God's kind providence will not only be with you and bless you there in Texas, but give you the opportunity to come back and worship with us. We will try to pray for you from time to time and trust you'll do the same for us. Now, this morning you will notice from the bulletin that we come to the fourth question. The series is half over. We've considered what humility is, where it originates, how important it is. And now today we're going to consider together some, I trust, helpful examples of humility. In fact, we're going to take a little portion of our time this morning to look at an example of pride. I said from the outset it's impossible to preach on humility without preaching on pride. It's impossible to preach on pride without preaching on humility. And I think it will be helpful to us this morning to take one more brief look at pride before we conclude our study today on humility Uh, and an example of it, the ultimate example of it. We all need examples. Examples are helpful to us. When you're trying to learn to do something, sometimes you'll say to someone, could you show me how to do that? Would you give me one? Just do one for me. I want to watch it. Maybe you're cutting something out. And, um, you know, you take the pattern and they say to you, well, just, just hold it like this, draw around it if you like, and then cut it out. That would be a very simple illustration of someone showing us. But examples are very, very helpful but they can also be harmful. But this morning I want us to think about some examples of pride and humility and especially the ultimate example of humility. If I were to direct your attention to examples of pride in the Old Testament, I could take you to where Blake took the Sunday school class this morning, one of the Sunday school classes, to the case in the life of Pharaoh and show you this proud man who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? What an arrogant prime minister he was. And then he was humbled. I could take you to King Saul, who promised so much for the nation of Israel, but because he was a proud man, did not serve his nation well. We looked at King Nebuchadnezzar and saw how proud he was when he stood on the top of his roof and looked over the wonders of Babylon and said, look at this great Babylon that I have made 
myself and established for my own majesty. And God turned him into an animal for a period of time and he lost his sanity for the distinct purpose of becoming humble. And he did humble himself. Perhaps he was genuinely converted and we'll see him someday in heaven. We could go to the New Testament. I've already referred to King Herod who was struck suddenly with death. He died by worms. Or we could go all the way to the end almost of our New Testaments and just be reminded of Diotrephes. That's a name you don't want to call any of your children, any of your boys. Because he's known for one thing. He wanted to be in first place. He longed for preeminence. But I am going to turn us to one example of pride in the Old Testament. And it is found in this portion of Scripture that I've already turned you to, Second Chronicles 29. Now, we're going to take a moment in Second Chronicles, and then we're going to run back to Second Kings, and then come right back to Second Chronicles. So, if you will, when we leave Second Chronicles chapter 29, uh, well, we'll be actually leaving chapter 31 by the time I'm through with what I'm doing. Put a marker and we're coming back to it. Hezekiah was one of the great kings of Israel. He was one of the godly kings. He became a kind of a template and a pattern for godliness. He was referred to again and again. In chapter 29 and verse 2, you see a general assessment of him. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. And in verse 3, we're told what he did. He cleansed the temple. And then if you go all the way over to verse 20, you will notice that he restores temple worship. And then if you'll just glance at chapter 30 and verse 1, you'll notice that uh, he began to renew the celebration of the Passover. And then if you skip to chapter or to verse 20 of that same chapter you'll notice that the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Actually uh, back in verse 19 he set his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers. He was a good king. And then when we come to chapter 31, notice verse 1, he's organizing the priesthood. And then also, in this same chapter in verse 20, we have a general assessment. Thus, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good in the in right and faithful before the Lord his God in every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God he did with all his heart and prospered a great and godly king and I underscore that because one of my applications is going to be this that godly people are very susceptible to pride. And so if you will go back now, I'll put a marker there and go back with me to 2 Kings 19. I'm going to show you his pride and then we'll come back here just one time. 2 Kings 19. <clears throat> the first horrible fearful trial he faced was Sennacherib, 
the king of Assyria. He was about to destroy the capital city, Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed one of the amazing, outstanding prayers of Scripture found in verses 15 through 19. We'll not look at the prayer. But basically, he was desperate. He showed a letter to God on his knees in the temple and pleaded with God with what we call holy argument. And God heard and answered his prayer. And we read in verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Great deliverance came to the nation of Israel, to the capital city, through her godly king Hezekiah and through his wonderful prayer. Then something happened to him. He got sick. We read about it in chapter 20. And he prays again in verse 3, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. (coughs) And the Lord wonderfully, graciously answered his prayer and said, I'm going to give you 15 more years of life, Hezekiah. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful gift. But Hezekiah, made of some of the same stuff we're made of, just said, God, would you, would you prove it to me? I mean, that's too good to believe. Could you give me some sign? There was sort of some unbelief in that request. And God, being gracious, said, okay, I'll give you a sign. I'll do something supernatural. How about this? I'll do something with the sun. Would you like me to hasten it set, or would you like me to put it in reverse? And he said, put it in reverse, because that would be even more stupendous. God put it in reverse. Three amazing things happen in the life of this godly king. Tremendous delivery over the Assyrians. Wonderful restoration of health. And a supernatural sign. Wow! There's a recipe for humility. There's enough to make somebody humble for the rest of their lives. Never being able to forget what God had done for them, though they did not deserve it. And yet, the story becomes very sad. I want you to notice. And now I'd like you to uh, just notice, let's say, chapter 20. Verses 1 through 7. This was after the third stupendous blessing of God, namely the sign of the sun. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to King Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all the treasure. His house, treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, And what have they seen in your house? Now Hezekiah will give him credit for giving an honest answer. And Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And then Isaiah says, Now God will have to judge you. And you need 
now to realize that these things that you're so fond of are all going to be stolen and taken from the kingdom of Israel and taken into Babylon. It was really a shocking and fearful prophecy from God. And surely Hezekiah knew I shouldn't have done that. Now I just want to take a moment to tell you This is what you and I are like. This is especially what I'm like. Maybe you're not like this. This is is the one thing I want you to see. Maybe before I tell you what it is, we'll just quickly go back now to the 2 Chronicles passage. Would you go to 2 Chronicles 32? Let me show it to you, and then I'll summarize the statement. 2 Chronicles 32. And I just want to read verses 24, 25, and 31, and that's it. These are, this is a parallel account. Second Chronicles 32:24. In those days Hezekiah became sick, and he was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. Here we go. Could this have happened to you? But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. What was his problem? For his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah, especially after Isaiah told him what was going to happen, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride in his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon him. In the days of Hezekiah, it was delayed, but the wrath did come. Now notice this insight in verse 31. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. These are fearful words, dear people. These are fearful words. And God still does what I'm going to read to you. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know that all that was in his heart, God knew all that was in his heart because God is omniscient. Hezekiah didn't know all that was in his heart, and you don't know all that is in your heart, and neither do I. And if we saw all that was in our heart, we would quake with fear and fall on our faces and say, Oh God, please don't leave me to myself. Please. Here come these envoys from Babylon. What a golden opportunity to witness and to preach the gospel. And they come and they say, we send greetings from our king. We're glad you are well. Tell us about your recovery. And Hezekiah should have said, I've got more to tell you than about that. Let me take you back and tell you what happened the night I prayed in the temple. And 185,000 of the enemy died suddenly. Let me tell you about God coming to me when I wept bitterly before Him and said, God, life is precious. Could I live just a little longer? And He says, okay, how about 15 more years? And then in my unbelief, I asked Him for a sign, and God condescended in His grace and mercy to meet me in my relative unbelief. And He he did a miracle for me. He caused the sun to go back. You know about that. That was an experience that was inexplicable. 
to astronomers. Oh, God has been so good and gracious to me. Can I, could I tell you about the true and the living God who forgives sinners through a Messiah to come? But He didn't. When He hears that they're coming, He does what you and I would be tempted to do, at least tempted, and I fear that I would succumb to the temptation. Wow, I'm pretty famous. I, I must be something. I must really be somebody. Maybe even in God's sight. Look what God has done for me. He hasn't done that for other people that I know of. Anything that stupendous. Killing 185,000 people after a simple, brief, earnest prayer. Adding 15 years to my life. Causing the sun to go in reverse. I must... I must be something. And even if he didn't go through that thought process, he started thinking, well, when they come, I'm going to show them how prosperous I really am. And he took them to his treasure house. And I submit to you, dear people, that we have our own ways of taking people to our treasure house. Let me show you what I've done. Let me, And then we sanctify the, what God has done for me. And what we really mean is, look at me. Look at how important I am. And we don't return to God the humility and the gratitude and the thankfulness. And we forget that the goodness of God is designed to lead to repentance, even in the lives of Christians. Every time God is good to you, look up and say, God, you're so good. You're such a good God. How can I treat such a good God so badly? The way that I live, oh God, I'm sorry. Draw my heart out. Help me to hate my sin. I love you, God. I'm sorry that I keep sinning against you. That's what the goodness of God should do. But what I'm telling you, dear people, this morning is this. There's something that resides in our hearts, in every single one of our hearts, that causes us to even allow the wonderful things that happen in our lives to lead us to pride. The wonderful things. The evidences of God's blessing upon us become occasions for pride. Can you imagine it? It's unthinkable that the goodness of God which should lead us to repentance because of remaining sin leads us to pride. How insidious is this sin? How wicked and vile it is. I'm going to tell you again, Hezekiah was a godly man. And yet it happened in his life. So don't any of us dare to go out of this room or the Midwest Center room today thinking, that that could never happen to me. No, it's it's happening right now to you and to me. Because none of us are as humble as we ought to be in light of all good God has been to us. And one of my applications to heritage, I've been trying to put one in every now and then. And maybe I've touched on it, but it's a little different. I think what 
we have to keep working toward dear people is that humility that fills us with the spirit of servanthood here we have so many ministries that need so much help and I just want to ask all of you before we make transition and go to the really beautiful example of humility would you just search your heart and and see this is my question to you with regard to serving the body here in the various ministries there are so many of them so many of them with regard to the ministries of heritage and all of the volunteer labor that is necessary to carry out these ministries how much humility are you displaying how many ministries are you involved in is it just one i mean some sometimes one ministry is more than enough i understand that but some people say, well, I, I do that. I, you know, I take care of children you know, every five weeks, every four weeks, every six weeks, whatever. That's, that's my ministry. And what do you do the other weeks? Now, I'm not shaming this congregation for not being a volunteering congregation. We talk about it in eldership. You're a very giving people, okay? So this is not designed to just... You know, lambast, make everybody feel badly. This is manipulation by guilt. Not, not at all. But God knows who those of you are who really do very little. And you know who you are. And I don't know who you are. But I'm asking you, are you really, really, really humble? Do you ever go to the deacons and say, what could I do to help serve this body? And find them to say, well, you're already doing three things. I know, but I'd like to do something else. I love the church and I know we need help. Or are you just too quick to criticize? Well, I don't really think they're doing that ministry quite right. You know what that is? That's pride. Of course we're not doing it quite right. We want to do it better, and we want to keep working on it. But we need to be more quick to help and serve than to point out what's wrong with the situation. It's pride. And so my prayer and the prayer of my fellow pastors is that we'll all grow, starting with the pastors, starting with the pastors. I'm very troubled about preaching this sermon. I'm going to make an honest confession. How do you preach a series of sermons on pride or on humility? Who dares to get up and preach on humility? I feel so ashamed. I feel so inadequate. And that's not false humility. That's the truth. I am a proud man. Your pastors deal with pride. We all deal with pride. And I'm asking you, if you want to just tune out the rest of the sermon, well, I really prefer that you wouldn't, but could you just squeeze in a quick, God, show me the areas of pride and help me to be more humble and let it manifest itself in the way I serve the body here and let it manifest itself in me putting my hand over my mouth when I'm quick to criticize what's wrong with the program. Okay, now let us go quickly to Philippians chapter 2. And we come to the what I'm going to call the ultimate example of humility. Now, again, in the New Testament, I could, or in the Bible, I could go to some wonderful examples of humility. Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Isaiah fell down 
and cried out, Woe is me! John the Baptist, when told that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than him, said, Great! It's wonderful! May He increase and I decrease. We could go to our Lord's parable, the tax collector who smote upon his chest and said, Oh God, God, just be merciful to me, the biggest sinner. Or we could go to the Apostle Paul, and we learned about him last Lord's Day through our brother Tim. He was brought to the place where he said, I'm done with all those credentials. I'm done with them. I I don't look upon them with any favor anymore. They're just like rubbish to me. And he came to see that and believe that he was not only the chief of sinners, but the least of all the saints. We could look at those. But I've chosen instead to take you to our Savior. Even as the devil is the ultimate example of pride, Our Savior is the ultimate example of humility. And so we spend just a few minutes here in in chapter 2. And this is is an amazing, overwhelming passage. This literally could be preached on for several weeks. Could I just read for you, starting uh, with verse 2 through verse 8. Well, uh, and maybe the first three or four words of verse 9. Verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy. I'm, I'm very joyful in you, but you can make me even more joyful. Here's what I want you to do. By being of the same mind, could you all just start getting united? Would you quit being so divided? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of accord, not discord, accord, and of one mind. And what that's going to mean is do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What is Paul exhorting the Christians in the church there in Philippi to become? Humble, loving United people who have learned how to quit saying it's all about me. It's not all about me. It's very little about me. It's about other people. It's about the church. It's about ministries. It's about serving. It's not about me. I don't want to be rivalry, uh, guilty of rivalry any longer. I don't want to be proud and arrogant, conceited. I need to be humble. I want to look at other people as more significant than me. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not better than them in any regard. God has given you gifts that they don't have. But generally speaking, we should look at one another and say, I believe that brother so-and-so is more significant in the larger scheme, scheme of things than I am. And I rejoice in that. I'm thankful for that. And then, having exhorted the Christians in Philippi to be humble, what is his illustration? What is his example? Look at it. It's in verse 5. And he launches into some of the most exquisite, sublime, supreme, glorious, majestic language that has ever been spoken 
spoken or written to describe our Savior. Mysteries concerning His incarnation. Mysteries concerning His pre-incarnate glory. Mysteries concerning His death on the cross. He launches into the most amazing, some believe it to have been the substance of a hymn. Verses 6-11. through 11. 6, 7, and 8 the first part of the hymn. 9, 10, and 11, the second part of the hymn. An amazing passage. An amazingly theological passage. And, and we need to study it and live in it and revel in it and relish in it and contemplate it and teach it and preach it and, and work out the theological implications of it. Because this passage, almost more clearly than any other passage, teaches the eternal deity of the Son of God, equal with the Father in power and glory, completely divine. And yet at the same time it teaches that He humbled Himself and took upon Himself the form of a servant. It's an amazing passage. So, even though it's hugely theological, I just want to make this point. Paul's going for something else. See, like when the Philippians all read it, they say, okay, now let's don't worry about our relationships and our pride and all this stuff about thinking one another. Let's get into some real deep theology here. Man, he's got us swimming in the deep end of the pool now. Isn't this great? I love it when we get real theological like this. They, they couldn't have felt that way because the whole point was... You people in Philippi and you people at Heritage need to start getting humble. You need to start working toward oneness of mind, oneness of love, oneness of cord. And I'm going to tell you the ultimate illustration, the ultimate example, the ultimate motivation is Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you something that ought to really energize your efforts and your resolve to be humble there at Heritage. I'm going to show you the ultimate example of humility, and when I'm done showing it to you, you should feel so humble in seeing it that you hate your pride. <clears throat> because the essence, dear people, of what I'm going to try to remind you of this morning is, that, is this, that the ultimate act of humility on the part of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was necessary to pay for our pride. <clears throat> I'm going to show you the ultimate example of humility, and I'm going to remind you that Jesus had to do this because of our pride. He hates our pride. And the only thing that could deal with our pride would be for the eternal, glorious Son of God to willingly relinquish the outward manifestations of His glory, not His divinity, the outward manifestations of His glory and say, God, Father, even though I'm worthy of this glory and this environment because I'm God too, I'm equally God with You, I don't have to, I don't have to grasp this. I can do what You and I and the Holy Spirit have agreed to do from all eternity in the covenant of redemption. The Father said, I'm going to choose a people. And He says to His Son, I want you to redeem them. But in order to redeem them, you're going to have to leave the glory and the environment and the bliss 
and the outward manifestations of your deity. And you're going to have to go down to a sin-cursed earth and live in a body, a human body, that has the effects of sin. A weak body. And you're going to have to endure degradation. And it's going to consummate in the curse of the cross. And Holy Spirit, after He has redeemed these people, you are going to enlighten their understandings through the gospel and you're going to regenerate them and you're going to give them grace to turn from their sins out of a true hatred and to flee to this blessed Savior and to embrace Him. And they all agreed. And if I can just be theological for a moment, theologians talk about the essential trinity and they talk about the economic trinity and to make it real simple, it just means that in their essence, they're totally equal. They're totally equal. It's not like God the Father is more God than God the Son. Oh, no. And it's not like God the Holy Spirit is less like God than the Son and the Father. Oh, no. They're all equally God and glorious. Absolutely, essentially divine, all three of them. That's called the essential trinity. That is in their essence. But the economic trinity is the way that they have determined to work out their redemptive plan. And in that redemptive plan, there is willing subservience on the part of the Son to the Father and on the part of the Holy Spirit to the Son and the Father, just like in a husband-wife relationship. Who is the most human, a man or a woman? Who has the most dignity? Which one is most created in the image of God, the man or the woman? You say, that's a stupid question. They're equally created in the image of God. Absolutely. They are essentially the same. But in the outworking of the family, God ordained that the husband be the head and the wife be submissive to the husband. And in that sense, there is a plan in the purposes of God for salvation where the Son willfully submits to the Father and comes to earth and says, I come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And the Holy Spirit does the will of the Son and the Father. And so there is this outworking. And I am submitting to you, dear people, and I know I haven't even read the passage, but maybe this will be helpful. When I'm done sort of telling you what I believe this teaches, we're going to read it, and I think you're going to say, yeah, that is exactly what it teaches. The Son said to the Father, I don't have to grasp this outward manifestation of my glory. I can relinquish that outward manifestation of it. I can relinquish the privilege of this glorious environment here that we have enjoyed throughout eternity. He speaks of it. He says, Father, I long for the day when I will have the glory that I had with You before the world began. I can let it go for a period of time. Now listen to me. He's not giving up His deity. There's no relinquishment of deity. He can't relinquish His deity. In that God-man Jesus Christ, He was as much God as He'd ever been God. But He veiled it. Listen, don't you sing this every Christmas? Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold Him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Now listen. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. 
Would you hear that? You sing it. We sing it every Christmas. We should sing it all year long. Veiled in flesh. What's veiled in flesh? The Godhead. See it. See it by the eyes of faith. Jesus didn't have a halo over His head. Showing and demonstrating to the world that He was divine. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. This is what happened. He who was in the form of God, that is to say, who was in His essence and nature divine. And he who did not believe that equality with God in terms of its outward manifestation of glory was something that he had to grasp. Willingly emptied himself, made himself nothing, and took on the form of a servant. Servant first of Jehovah and then a servant of man. And then was made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the Father, even to the death of the cross. You talk about the ultimate. Would you listen to me? I'm going to say it again. This is the ultimate. It's the ultimate illustration of humility. And in the face of that, we who say, I'm trusting in that Jesus, He's my Savior, dare to be proud. Dare to be proud. How do you dare to be proud? in the face of that kind of of an example of humility. Now I've talked all around the passage and it's time to look at it. So look, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can have this mind. It belongs to you. It can come to you. It can be your... I want you to be this way. And by the way... You know, God wants us to be like Christ. That's the assumption of this whole thing. I'm preaching a sermon on who are the, who are the most helpful examples. And I'm saying Christ is the ultimate example. But you may wonder, well, does God really want us to be like Christ? Surely you don't wonder that. Surely you've read your Bible enough. Jesus said Himself, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly and gentle of heart. Learn from me. He... <clears throat> washes the disciples' feet and says, Now I want you to do what I have done. If I, your Lord and Master, have humbled myself to wash your dirty, stinking, smelly feet, and I have condescended to do that, I've done it for a purpose because I want my people to be characterized by that kind of love and humility. In fact, he says later in that chapter, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples. That you're my disciples. Because you're like your master, who was the ultimate example of humility. I could take you to passage after passage where we're told to be like our Savior. So that's assumed. 
And that's clearly what Paul has in mind. He's saying, Philippian Christians, would you quit being divided? Would you love each other? Would you be of one mind? Would you please be humble and start looking at each other as better than the other person? Will you quit being so self-centered? And you can almost hear them say, yes, how do we do that? And he says, by thinking about Jesus Christ. That's how you do it. Have this mind in you, which was also, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here it comes. Who, though he was in the form of God, that doesn't have anything to do with his physical feature, because before the incarnation, he was a spirit only. He didn't have a body. It doesn't have anything to do with shape. It means essence. Who was in his very essence God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, i got to quickly explain this. When He came down to the earth, he did, not in his divine, he did not lose His divine nature and become unequal to God. He can't give up. God can't quit being God. The Son of God will always be equal to God. He could not give up His divine nature. I hope this is getting clear. I know there's a mystery here. He didn't give up His divine nature. He can't. So, the inequality, if you will, that Jesus experienced was only with regard to the outward manifestation of the glory. But once in a while, it broke through. He who in the beginning was with God, was God. And the same became flesh and dwelt among men. And we beheld His glory. When did they see His glory? Well, they saw it by faith. But occasionally there would be a little outburst of glory like in the transfiguration. But generally speaking, almost throughout the entirety of the life of Jesus, even for those who believed upon Him, they didn't see an outward manifestation of glory. He looked like an ordinary human being. He let that go. In that sense, He was willing to not be equal with the Father. Okay, I'll give this up. I'll happily give it up. Because He loved sinners. He did not serve Himself. That's the whole point of Philippians. Will you quit being so self-centered? Jesus had His people on His mind. And so, He relinquished it. Though He was in the form of God, He didn't count equality with God in terms of the outward manifestation of that glory as a thing to be grasped. But He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, you can debate and argue as to when the humility really kicked in. Obviously, most of this passage is about the humiliation of Jesus Christ post-incarnation. But I would agree with a number of theologians that I've read in preparation for this, and Hendrickson uh, as one illustration of it. In his pre-incarnate existence, in the eternal covenant of redemption, the posture of the Son of God in terms of the outworking of the plan of redemption was one of, I am willing at the right time. I am desirous 
at the right time. It is my passionate desire at the right time to relinquish what I presently grasp. There was that disposition in the heart of the Son of God prior to the Incarnation. But it can't be thought of as apart from the Incarnation because that becomes the great display. And so he takes on the form of a man. And he becomes obedient even to the point of death. You see why you can't preach on this? Are you starting to see at least something of the humility of Jesus Christ in this? What He did? What He did for us? It's beyond our full grasp. I'm, just, I'm going to tell you right now, no theologian in the, human, in the history of man has ever fully grasped the mystery and the glory. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. This is as deep as it gets. And I hope in one sense you go out of here today and you say, Pastor Ted preached the sermon. It's about as deep as it can get. He told us we're in the deep end of the pool. But he also helped us understand that Jesus, that Christ, the Son of God, never gave up His divinity. He just veiled it. He gave up the environment. He... He came into a new relationship to God's law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth a son made of a woman made under the law. He was never under the law when He was in heaven. He didn't have to be under the law. He was the lawgiver. But He comes down to earth and changes His relationship to the law. And He gives up His riches. And by the way, when Paul wants to motivate the Corinthians how to give really, really, really graciously and really liberally like the Macedonians, he says, will you just remember the one who, was, who though he was rich, became poor for your sake, that you might have the riches of God? How did he who was rich become poor? Through the Incarnation. Through the Incarnation. You can't even... You can't even contemplate adequately the riches that Christ enjoyed throughout eternity prior to His incarnation. He gave up those riches. He didn't give up His divinity. He gave up that environment of glory. And He took on human nature. And oh, I wish we had time to think about this. Born. from the womb of the Virgin Mary, born in a stable. God living in a body which experienced the effects of sin. There was no sin in the body, but He took on human nature. Guess what? Human nature has fallen, and Jesus became, as a man, tired and caught colds and had toothaches. And got the flu. And had to obey his mommy and his daddy. And was ill-treated. And was hated and despised and lied about. And took all of that and it reached its consummation on the cross. And there he took the sins of the world and his own father cursed him. I can't describe for any of us the, the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross. The worst of criminals were crucified, mostly slaves. 
It was an ignominious way to die. It's all part of the humiliation. For what? For your pride? For your pride and for my pride? I just want us to think about pride today. There's a thousand other sins he had to be humiliated for in order to pay for them. But right now I'm wanting us to think about pride. That's what Paul's talking about in this text. I need to draw my remarks to a close. He gave all this up. He gave up his independent authority. When he was in heaven with the Father before he was incarnate, he did as the Son of God whatever he wanted to do, of course, in harmony with the will of his Father and the Holy Spirit. But what I mean is that when he came to earth, he said, I come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he did all of that for us. I want to read for you the words of Baxter. You know, Baxter wrote a treatise on humiliation or on humility, and he gives directives how to kill pride and strengthen humility. You want to read something great? Just read about one page a day, and it'll take you about a month. And one page will be more than enough. Direction number seven is real short. He says, look to a humbled Christ to humble you. Can you be proud while you believe that your Savior was clothed with flesh and lived in poverty and made himself of no reputation and was despised and scorned and spit upon by sinners and shamefully used and nailed as a malefactor to a cross? Can you be proud when you think about that? The very incarnation of Christ is a, condens- a, a condescension, condescension and humiliation enough to overwhelm the angels, transcending all belief, but such a God Himself produces by a supernatural testimony and spirit. You couldn't believe it if God didn't produce that kind of faith. And can pride look at a crucified Christ in the face or stand before Him? Did God take upon Him the form of a servant? And must you dominate in order to have the highest place? Had not Christ a place to lay his head on, and you must have you must needs have your adorned, well furnished rooms? Must you dress up in the most fantastic fashion instead of your Savior's seamless coat? Does he pray for his murderers and must you be revenged for a word or a petty wrong? Is he patiently spit upon and buffeted and you're ready through proud impatience to spit upon or buffet others? This is the closing sentence in this paragraph. Surely he that condemned sin in the flesh condemned no sin more than pride. Heritage. We're a proud people. And if you can't admit that with this proud pastor, then you're just proving your pride. We are a 
proud people. In a multitude of ways. And Baxter's saying, you want some help with your pride? Every time you're tempted to be proud like Hezekiah, go to the cross, go to the cross. Really, start with the incarnation, really, because that's what this passage is about. And think about the second person of the Trinity willingly relinquishing the outward manifestation of His equality with God and coming down here to this earth. Hendrickson says he just lived the whole life of borrowing. He borrowed a, he borrowed a, a stable for a place to be born. He borrowed homes to sleep in when he didn't sleep outside under the stars. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And he borrowed an upper room to have his final supper with his disciples. He was poor. He who was rich for our sakes became poor that we might have the riches of God. But we are a proud people. And we need to go to a humble Savior. And I want to say to you kids and young people who are unconverted, you need to see your pride. And you need to flee to a humble Savior. It's just really so encouraging to know that our Savior is approachable. When He lived on this earth, wicked people found Him very approachable. Man, I wish we were like that. I wish the really wicked, sinful people of Davis County and Owensboro wanted to be around us as much as they wanted to be around Jesus those who lived in his day. You can go to Jesus. This one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey rode on a donkey on purpose because he wanted to say, my kingdom is not of this world. But I want to warn you, you who are proud in the sense that you've never dealt with your pride at all, I want to warn you that someday this humble, meek Savior will come in glory. And according to the book of Revelation, people are going to flee and run for any and every possible place of cover. Because He's going to come. Even though it says, flee from the the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. There are other passages that teach His coming as as a lion. But I present to you who are unconverted a humble, meek Savior who said, this is what He said, listen, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden because of your awareness of your sinfulness, and you'll find rest unto your souls. Take My yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am lowly and gentle of heart. Can you imagine standing before that Christ on the day of judgment who humbled himself to save you from pride and you having to say, 
I didn't want to become humble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess to you that we don't. We really think it's perhaps safe to say we hardly begin to understand the mystery and the glory of this passage, which speaks about your humiliation for us. But we thank you that we understand enough of it to be thrilled by it, to be humbled by it, to be motivated by it. And we pray that you will continue to give us insight. You wrote this letter through your servant Paul for ordinary people who were struggling with pride and division. And so we take great comfort in believing we we understand what they understood when they first heard it read. Lord Jesus, you are the ultimate example of humility. And we pray that you will help us to be like you. May we argue this way with you, our precious Savior. If you want us to be humble, which you surely do, how can you deny our request when we pray? Make us like yourself. Help Heritage Baptist Church and all of its people to be known for their humility. Help any who are ruled by pride this morning to repent of it and flee to this Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.